From the New York offices of Oxford University Press, this is The Oxford Comment, a monthly podcast featuring insights from Oxford University Press authors, editors, and more. My name is Michelle Wilson, assistant editor for Oxford Art Online, and your host for this episode. Oxford Art Online is where you'll find the Grove Dictionary of Art and the Benazit Dictionary of Artists, and this episode is part of an ongoing series of interviews with Benazit's editor-in-chief, Dr. Kathy Batista. Today, she interviews painter Betty Tompkins, and just a note, today's recording contains some explicit language and references to sexually explicit artworks, so now would be a good time to remove impressionable young people from the room or to put in your earbuds. Betty Tompkins has received a lot of attention in the last 14 years. After a solo exhibition at Mitchell August Gallery in 2002 and a showing at the Lyon Biennale in 2003, she was featured in The Observer, Art in America, and The New York Times, just to name a few. She's now represented by three international galleries and has had a work acquired by the Centre Pompidou in Paris. Betty is probably best known for her fuck paintings, large photorealistic paintings of heterosexual sex that are painted with an airbrush on canvases averaging five by seven feet in size. Her most recent series, Women Words, is made up of 1,000 small canvases painted with words used to describe women that Betty has crowdsourced and collected for years. Betty has been a working artist since the 1960s, and as we learned in her interview with Kathy, her success has come by working through the pressures of the art market, overcoming censorship, and facing the challenges of being a woman in the art world. So I wanted to start kind of um, at the beginning. You move here. Um, it's 1969 is 69. Yeah. And you had you have a loft. No, when I first no? moved here. Um, my, I was with my first husband, Don Tompkins, mm-hmm. kept the Tompkins yes. part, hoped it would be easy to spell, which turns out everybody misspells yeah, it. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, uh, but it was better than Beicher, which nobody can pronounce or spell, so I, I kept the name. But we moved here, and he was a doctoral student at Teachers College, Columbia University, so we lived in their student housing. and. Uh, the student housing was a very small one-bedroom apartment. So it's two rooms. On the end of one room was tacked the kitchen. So the room itself then was the living room. And the other room was the bedroom. And tacked onto the end of that was the bathroom. And my studio, my first studio in New York, was the space between the bed and the wall. And with about five feet. And I just hopped over the bed a lot because I always need to back off from my paintings to see what I was doing. Um, But in no space at all, I was working with an airbrush. And I was working with the airbrush because in graduate school, I had given up uh, working with brushes and I was using spray guns. And when I walked into this apartment, I said, I can't use a spray gun in here. I'll kill myself. You know, it was obviously not not the right environment. So I thought, well, I'll try an airbrush. So I went down to Pearl Paint, and I got an airbrush. And I went back uptown, and I did one painting where I taught myself how to use the airbrush. And then after that, my second painting in that apartment was fuck painting number one. And that's seven feet, eight feet? Uh, seven feet by five feet. Yeah. So yeah. bigger than you. 
alive yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the tiny space yeah 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 if you if you didn't want to look at art because uh don's studio he was uh, uh an art jeweler was the living room so we didn't actually have a living room and if you didn't want to look at any art at all you just took all the pillows and went to the bathtub <laughs> and read a book, I suppose. Or... Yeah, so, yeah, of course. Or you lay on the bed and read a book. But if he wanted to read a book and if I was painting, he had to go to the bathroom. Now, you having this loft, because I'm very interested in this because I feel today artists don't, it's a lot harder to get into the property market, which means they have to do a lot of other jobs to survive. Exactly. And I think it's really, I think it's really going to, be a problem for New York art and creativity. I, I agree with you. It's you know, I, when, when I Bush have people come over to my studio or if I go give a talk somewhere, I always say, you know, everybody's career goes up, down, up, down, up, down. Nobody has a sustained career. It. I can name maybe two artists that I think went up and stayed there. Uh, but most people, there's enormous uh, financial fluctuation. And you have to be prepared for it. And I always say the first thing that you do, if you have a good year, a good two months, first thing, pay off all your debt. Mm -hmm. Second thing, secure housing. Mm. I don't care where it is or what it is, mm. secure housing. Because it gives you the freedom to create your work. Exactly. It means you have so, you have fewer, you have fewer financial obligations that you're required to meet monthly mm -hmm. so that if you go okay this this piece is in serious trouble right now I have a painting in serious trouble so it's <laughs> on my mind um, this piece is in serious trouble and I'm not walking out of this room until I come to a solution you can do it you don't have to say oh I have to go teach this class in two and a half hours so I have two hours plus half an hour cleanup and get there. You know, you don't, you can clear that out of your mind and it makes a difference. I think it makes a huge difference. It'll be interesting to see in decades to come, you know, what kind of art is being produced here, or what kind of artists can maintain a New York lifestyle and still create work. Because I think in your generation, a lot of people, like Bob Whitman, who was here the last time we did a podcast, you know, he basically lived on his real estate in a way that made oh, him. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah, know, able yeah, to, yeah. to do uh, whatever he right wanted artistically. When you go buy that first piece of real estate, it doesn't make any difference if it's in the worst neighborhood, in far away in New Jersey, whatever. It's something that you own, and you can use it for yourself. And when you don't need to use it for yourself, you can use it to produce income. Mm. Exactly. And you have, to, you have to think about that. No, because you always have to have the independence to step away from the market. Mm -hmm. You can't be in the market. We're all artists. I love to show. I love it when people buy my work. I'm not in the market. Mm -hmm. It's a byproduct of what I'm doing mm -hmm. and that I'm doing independently. And you have to have that. Mm -hmm. And, well, I wanted to talk about the market because now you're you're with PPOW, so and Gavlik Gallery. Oh yes, Gavlik and and Rodolf. In so now you have three galleries have three to galleries. sustain. So, do you feel more pressure to produce because each one needs work? Um. Yes and no. 
you know, yes, obviously um, there are expectations, but also I work with three wonderful galleries. So when I say I can't do this show until spring of 2018, they understand. You know, or if I say, okay, we have, I have enough here to pull together and we still have X amount of time before it is. I work with wonderful people and that's the key to it. If you're an emerging artist, you work with whoever you can mm -hmm. and it maybe is not so wonderful. It's great if they're a nurturing gallery and really understand, but... I can see that the situation could arise, especially for an emerging artists, where the dealer is hitting a run and wants to go with it. And in order to go with it, you have to really be producing. Yes. And the problem with producing, as opposed to making art, is you're no longer taking any chances. You're just doing what you know how to do. And um, frankly, from my point of view, that gets really boring really, really fast. Uh, so my protection from this is I don't put myself in that position. Mm -hmm. And before I had these three wonderful galleries, and I worked with Mitchell August, and if I, I could say when I was ready to have a show, and we would schedule it, but before him, I worked with him uh, starting in 2002 to 2009, but before that, Basically, I had no galleries. I had no pressure at all. Nobody was interested. <laughs> so like, it was like total yes. freedom. It's like the gorilla girls when they say the ten advantages to being a women artist. Exactly. No pressure. I had all no pressure of, to succeed. I had all of those advantages. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. Gorilla Girls, that's spelled G-U-E-R-I-L-L-A, are an American group of performance artists and activists who were founded in 1985. The Gorilla Girls conduct letter-writing campaigns, stage protests, and create satirical posters that highlight gender and racial disparities in the art world. The poster that Kathy referred to, titled Advantages of Being a Woman Artist, is from 1988. Among the advantages of being a woman artist listed are working without the pressure of success, being reassured that whatever kind of art you make, it will be labeled feminine, and seeing your ideas live on in the work of others. Betty was part of the generation of women whose experiences inspired the formation of the Guerrilla Girls, and to learn more about the work of women artists in the 60s and 70s, I called up an expert, Dr. Betty Ann Brown. Hello, this is Betty Brown. Hi, Betty. This is Michelle. Dr. Brown is an art historian, a curator, a critic, and a longtime professor at California State University, Northridge, where she is now a professor emeritus. In the middle of the 20th century, women and people of color were almost totally excluded from art venues, so that the percentage of women in major public museums, the percentage of women artists was almost always under 10%. And the percentage of women artists in commercial galleries was even smaller. Women artists already in the middle of the 20th century, in the 1950s and 60s, made up the majority of students in undergraduate art classes, as they do today. But in the 1950s and 60s, all 
all, without exception, all of their teachers were white men. So that they studied the work of white male artists taught to them by white men and were absolutely devoid of role models. So who were considering themselves feminist artists and what kind of work were they doing? I want to preface it by saying there is no one feminism and there is no one way of doing feminist art. I think feminism should always be spoken in plural, feminisms. And I think it's important to be aware that feminist artists have addressed everything from their bodies to history to um, space and science to the culture at large. All of the feminisms have involved so many subjects, but I will tell you what was for me one of the most important here in Los Angeles was Woman House. So when Judy Chicago and Mimi Shapiro were teaching at CalArts, they wanted to create an exhibition space for female students outside the campus. So they found here in Los Angeles a house that was about to be destroyed and was empty. And they rented it for like a month. And every one of the students, of the women students who wanted to be involved, picked a room. Judy Chicago, by the way, picked the bathroom. And they transformed the interiors into images of their domestic memories. Uh, Judy Chicago, for example, did her most controversial piece ever, which was called the menstruation bathroom. And it was all red and had a whole bunch of Tampexes and Cotexes that looked like they were, that they had blood on them. And we have, in the last several decades, seen so much art that was about the abject that which disgusts us, that from which we turn away, that it's probably hard to remember. It's probably hard to even imagine how horrifyingly offensive Judy Chicago's menstruation bathroom was. At a time when women were being told on a daily basis that they had to spray their genitals so that they wouldn't smell so bad, Um, Judy Chicago was like, This is natural. This is what we do. This is what we all do. Why is it a dirty secret? The key thing about the early second wave of feminist art is that in this address of gender issues, these artists really engaged with the idea that gender is not natural, but a culturally constructed idea. And in doing this, that in, in examining how gender was given to us by the society at large, anticipated so much of the identity politics of postmodernism. Betty Tompkins is known as one of a number of feminist artists whose sexually explicit, sex-positive subject matter meant that they were actively subjected to censorship in the 1970s. You know, other feminist artists were using, you know, female nudity or the female body as, um, you know, expressing that in their artwork. How was Betty's work different or offensive to other women artists? Well, there's it's such a complicated issue. Um, First of all, I just want to remind you that Georgia O'Keeffe, way back 100 years ago, was constantly told that her work was sexual and that she adamantly denied that because she felt really strongly 
that she didn't want to be defined as a sex object. And I think that a lot of the pushback against explicit sexual imagery, again, against Judy Chicago, as well as Betty Tompkins. And, you know, there are a lot of explicitly sexual images in the feminist art movement. I think a big part of that pushback is simple prudery. You know, people are offended by Betty Tompkins' work in the same way they're offended by Robert Maplethorpe's work. You know, they just don't want to see explicit sexual imagery. The other thing is, the other issue besides the, you know, the uptightness, which men and women have, men and women have trouble looking at explicit sexual images. Not all men, not all women, but some men and some women. And the other issue is, and I think there's a lot to this, that women have so long been subject to objectification in pornography that it is really hard to look at explicit sexual images. You know, and, and it's a personal thing, too. People make choices for a whole lot of different reasons. In 2002, Betty's Fuck Paintings had their first solo show at Mitchell Algus Gallery in New York. And so, I mean, so you make a, this series of very large fuck paintings, mm-hmm. and then you put them away for 25 years, right? Sort of, yeah. 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 And then yeah, Chuck yeah. Close urged you to bring them back out, right? Yeah, yeah, it was a very generous action on his part to do. Uh, he lived on the top floor of my building uh, in on Prince Street mm-hmm. and he and Leslie lived there for many many years and people when they would when I was working on the paintings and people would come to my studio and they didn't know that he lived on the top floor and they would say oh just like Chuck Close but lower down and since that was <laughs> literally true yeah. Eventually, it was one of the reasons that I stopped doing them because I couldn't stand it anymore. I really couldn't stand it. The the irony yes. of the state yes. <laughs> was just it was it was killing me. we did were paintings which were done from 1969 to I think 1973. This is Mitchell Algus, the owner of Mitchell Algus Gallery. And those paintings were shown in sort of not particularly high profile galleries or places one was shown in the World Trade Center. And then Betty rolled them up and put them under her pool table. So after I had gotten the pictures and said we wanted to do a show and there was a lot of sort of feminist shows going on at the time. This is 2002. So there was some interest in that. We restretched the canvases and we put up these paintings or a couple of which were shown in France and then they had real problems with customs. (laughs) And, um, you know, so they were very explicit, photorealistic, spray-painted images of penetration. 
of sexual intercourse, you know, focused on the genitals. And so, you know, that they were big, impressive, beautifully painted, and they got a lot of attention. And then we showed Betty was making new work. The next show was paintings which were made with stamps that had words on them, which referred to the images. And finally, Betty went back and started to do spray paint. So the next two shows were these new spray painted paintings, which were done in a similar manner to the original ones from the early 70s. Okay, so how did you meet Betty and become introduced to her work? I guess it was sometime before 2002. Jerry Saltz, the critic, had dropped off some slides at the gallery. And I guess Betty had sent them to Jerry, and Jerry thought that I should take a look at them, so I did. And then right after 9-11, I moved my gallery. I was in Soho. I opened in Chelsea in early 2002 and then got in contact with Betty and talked to her about doing a show. And what was it about her work that made you interested in uh, setting up an exhibition? Well, a couple of things. I, I had been dealing with a lot of women artists whose work was not sort of seen in the traditional framing of feminism, and they were dealing with eroticism and things like that. So I was showing at the time a lot of artists who now people know well, but at the time were overlooked, including Joan Semmel, Anita Steckel, Judith Bernstein, and so, you know, Betty fit in well with that group of people. I mean, I wasn't thinking of it that programmatically, but it was just work which I thought needed to be seen and wasn't being, wasn't widely known. What did you hear people say when they came to see Betty's show at the gallery? That they were beautifully painted and people were sort of like, okay, these are pretty cool, why don't we know about them? widely by the press at that time, with many critics commenting not only on her striking subject matter and statement, but on her technical skill. When Mitchell first asked me if I would show these paintings, my biggest concern, the reason I didn't say, yes, of course, yes, of course, right away, and the reason I said, let me get back to you about this, the world's most important phrase, let me get back to you about this, um, is that I was afraid that the paintings the older paintings would look dated. Mm -hmm. And if they looked dated, I would have not shown them. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as it was, when I'm looking at, when I was looking at them that first night that we unrolled them, they looked fresh to me. Mm -hmm. They looked new. Mm -hmm. After 25 years. More. Were there any conservation issues? Or were oh, they... yeah, sure. Okay, okay. <laughs> they were, I had taken good care of them. I had put them on a big roll, face out, with a sheet, okay. a cotton mm -hmm. sheet in between each one, mm -hmm. and a cotton sheet around the whole thing, and mm -hmm. then wrapped the whole thing in plastic. Mm -hmm. So they were pretty, they were actually in good shape, but I had to, I had to clean all of them. Mm -hmm. There were spots. And um, because at the time I couldn't afford a conservator, I was 
the conservator. And they went into their first showing under what I had done with them, mm -hmm. which I made up. But it was good because it really totally reconnected me to the painting. Because that first night, I'm like, hey, what was I thinking? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and then so I, I put one up on the wall. And I started cleaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember. Yeah. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> I was thinking, good thought. And I <laughs> was and remain incredibly respectful of my younger self and the decisions that I made on those paintings. Mm -hmm. I really can't say that strongly enough because that doesn't happen really often mm. you go well I'm older I'm smarter I'm more experienced I've done this this and the other thing blah 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 and I look at it and I go wow that was a good decision yeah you know but I did have this idea um, I did know uh, even though I was really sort of socially unconscious when I was that age but I did know that I could be slammed if I did anything that was technically inaccurate. Mm -hmm. And I was careful to protect myself that way. Mm -hmm. You know, you can hate the painting, mm -hmm. but you can't tear it apart. Yeah. I did it perfectly. And was your technique similar? Did you have a grid? That, and, and I have worked with grids um, from the first day after I left graduate school. Mm -hmm. The first thing I did was say, I'm putting a grid on this. Uh, and so, yeah, so, um, and I worked with, I worked with a spray gun and then an airbrush. Uh, and when I, when I went back to the subject matter in 2003, I didn't want to do the same thing. I, it didn't sit right with me, you know, I, it didn't feel to me like an honest action mm -hmm. because I already knew how to do it mm -hmm. you know or I thought I knew how to do yeah. it you know uh, but I didn't I didn't want to pick up where I left off so. in 2003 Betty was invited to participate in the Lyon Biennale along with 61 other international artists Curator Bob Nickus paired her work with that of minimalist artist Steve Perino. From there, her work was presented to and accepted by the Acquisitions Committee at the Centre Pompidou in Paris. Lyon Biennale, and Bill and I, my current husband, we went, before he was my husband, uh, we went over for the opening, which was really great. I'm really glad that we did it. And Bob felt really, really good because all the artists he had gotten into this Biennale had all shown up for it. And for the other curators, um, many of the artists had not. And he felt that they could have made more of an effort to get there. Mm -hmm. And we were almost all Americans, so we had made an enormous effort to get there. But at any rate, so one day, Bill and I are taking a walking tour around Lyon. Um, those guidebooks really lead you to interesting yeah. places, mm -hmm. who knew? Uh, <laughs> anyway, so we're walking around and uh, I said to Bill, um, I should make a present for Bob to thank him because he had a lot of pressure on him putting me in the show from the other curators. And in, in the end, he really had to stand his ground. 
and that's why I was in the show. Mm -hmm. It would have been very easy for him to have removed me and given the entire space to Steve Perino. Instead, he had this idea of showing our paintings together. He thought they had great common ground, mm -hmm. and he stood, his, he stood his ground. So Bill said to me, well, that's a sweet idea. What do you want to do? And I've been through this a number of times. It's kind of why I, I've really learned to trust myself. And this was one of those moments. And I said, oh, let's get a stamp that says Leon. And I'll do a stamp drawing that says Leon of some of the images in the show. And if one is not terrible, I'll give it to Bob. So it came out, one sentence, fully formed. Yes. The whole idea was mm -hmm. there. So we got a stamp that said Leon. I did three drawings with it. I gave one of them to Bob, and then the Leon part fell off the stamp. So I said, well, that's the end of the Leon stamp. <laughs> and uh, so I decided, but I liked the stamping. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was yes. fun. And it was it's a really hot method, yeah. and the airbrush is a very cool method. Mm -hmm. I mean, you never touch the painting yeah. with the airbrush, and all I'm doing is touching, hitting, I'm hitting the yes. painting, I'm hitting the drawing mm -hmm. um, in order to, to use the stamp. So um, I thought, okay, uh, let's just make our own vocabulary, and I had already done the first call of words for the women mm -hmm. words, which I had done by email. So I didn't exactly want to do this by email, but I asked all the people I was really close to, what are your words, what, what's your language, what's your vocabulary, what do you call this, what do you call this, what do you call this, and they all said, oh, I'm so excited that you asked me this, I'm going to make a list and send it to you, and not one person did. Uh -huh. <laughs> Apparently I was hitting a little too close to home, and I... Um, so when Bill and I would be driving back and forth between New York and Pennsylvania, uh, I would sit there with a pad of paper and we would just throw language at each other. And I said, you have to find a different stamp maker because this fellow off after three and also he was a very religious gentleman and when he saw the first vocabulary <laughs> list he just flat out refused so Bill found me another stamp maker and every every once in a while he'd show up with you know like five or ten juicy words and I so I put together in my collection of stamps and I did uh, seven or eight stamp drawings uh, on paper, and then I said, okay, I get it. I'm ready to go big. So I just started with a seven by five foot painting, and I would look at the stamp, which was maybe three quarters of an inch, half an inch long, and I would look at this canvas seven feet, and I did think it was possible that I was insane. <laughs> It's a lot of stamping. It's a lot of it's a lot of stamping, and I did it for about two and a half years, and then I got tendonitis in both my arms, oh. and I'm so I'm going to physical therapy a couple of times a week, which is very painful. And then I come home and I rest for an hour, and I pick up my stamp, <laughs> and I thought you're never going to get better. Yeah. You know, and you're too young to be this injured. Mm. So uh, that's when I started again with the airbrush. And it turned out my original airbrush, which I still have, uh, um, 
it had sprung all its springs, it had lost, it, an airbrush doesn't have very many parts, but none of them were together. I didn't feel like inventing airbrush repair 101. So I went back down to Pearl Paint and I got myself two airbrushes. And I said, why didn't I do this years ago? One will be for dedicated to the white and one will be dedicated to the black. And I mix my own black, so they're chromatic blacks. And, and, I had, and what I could remember about um, working with the airbrushes, I spent a lot of time cleaning it out. And I didn't want to spend the time cleaning it out. So I said, I'll have two. And this way I won't have to spend my time yeah. cleaning it out. You know, it's easy, fun. So, okay, so I take out a small canvas, you know, 24 by 24 inches, and I put the airbrushes together, and I picked it up, I put it in my hand, and my hand said, where have you been? <laughs> Seriously. Yes. My hand, and I'm going, and here I am, I'm trying to remember what I used to do, and you can never go back. I mean, this was the big, the big lesson of mm -hmm. the day, is you can't go back. You have to just invent it forward. And basically, I made a deal with my brain that I would let my hand do whatever it wanted to do, and I wouldn't think about it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I listened to music, I sang along, I kept my brain really occupied, and I just followed whatever my hand wanted to do. And after about three days of working on this painting, you know, my brain said, okay, I get it, I get it. We can work together. <laughs> Let's join hands and work together. And so uh, that's, how, that's how I came back to it. I came back to it as something new. In 2002 and 2013, Betty circulated the following email. I'm considering doing another series of pieces using images of women comprised of words. I would appreciate your help in developing the vocabulary. Please send me a list of words that describe women. They can be affectionate, honey, pejorative, bitch, slang, descriptive, etc. The words don't have to be in English, but I need as accurate a translation as possible. Many, many thanks, Betty Tompkins. Betty received over 3,500 words and phrases in seven languages submitted by both men and women. In 2012, she was invited to create a performance in Vienna where 500 of the words and phrases were read aloud, and inspired by that performance, she decided to create 1,000 individual word paintings. For the text paintings, it's very much you um, you do use your hands. Oh, yeah. Sometimes literally. On yeah. Them, and you use a lot of different techniques, don't yeah, you? Those yeah, yeah. This was... Um, um, the women words, the text paintings, that was my big playtime, yeah. you know, uh, and it's one of the things that I do, which is, uh, uh, it's one of the ways I keep pressure off of me, and it's one of the ways I make sure that I won't cave, is that I have more than one thing going in my studio at the same time. Um, sometimes I'm very rigid about it. I'll only work on this in the morning. Or I'll only work on this if the sun is blaring out my painting wall and stuff like this. But I like to have more than one thing going on. Uh, and they and it helps if they're really different. Mm -hmm. So to me a drawing is very different than working on a painting. Mm -hmm. Working in black and white is very different than working with color. Sure. Stuff like this. So when I started with the women words when I decided oh I should actually paint these 
part. What I did, uh, I decided that I would only do them in Pennsylvania. Okay. It was not a New York City studio activity, mm -hmm. uh, which is true to this day. I've never done one in New York mm -hmm. City. And I could work on them in the morning, and I could work on them in my breaks in the afternoon because with an airbrush you get to take a lot of breaks mm -hmm. and either you can go on social media and fool around and waste your time or you can do something. Mm -hmm. so, I th so I thought okay because in the winter, in the winter in my studio in Pennsylvania there is an hour and a half where sunlight streaks across my painting and I can't work. Mm -hmm. So it helps to have this other thing to do. And then I thought that um, what I was doing wasn't working and my tendonitis was coming back anyway. So I, but I had these canvases that had all these gray fingerprint marks all over it. So I started with those and the first one that I did said slot, one of the four most popular words that I got. <laughs> um, the other three being cunt, bitch, and mother. For women, for for the women words, mm -hmm. so those were the, the the four more. So so I started I started with slut and then I did a, a cunt and um, uh, and then I was starting to do things. I was running out of the four by four inch canvases, mm -hmm. so I was starting to do other things. And eventually, I got the idea that this would be a really good place to present men's ideas, big boys, big bad boys in the art world. In other words, my heroes mm -hmm. from when I had been a student. Let's be clear about this. Mm -hmm. These are my hero mm -hmm. guys. Mm -hmm. And uh, that I wonder what would happen if I took what they did and then added these words to it. Mm -hmm. how, does, how does context and content merge and change under this circumstance. Mm -hmm. So I thought that that was an idea that would keep me engaged. The first ones that I did were uh, takes on the abstract expressionist, and it was an accident. I mean, the whole, I considered everything that I was doing within the series to to really embrace accidents, experimentation, whatever to do, not very much planning. Uh, to just sort of be in the moment and follow wherever my hand or brain was taking me. I'm sitting there, I'm looking at my palette. My palette is, uh, my palette for this was a um, 14 by 17 inch piece of drawing paper, mm -hmm. which eventually got so glued to the plywood uh, that it was on that I had to flip the plywood over because I was never going to be able to get it off. But anyway, I had put out a ton of paint on it and I'm looking at my little 4x4 four four inch canvas and I'm looking at this palette and with no articulation at all, I just picked up the canvas and I went splat <laughs> right into the paint. And then I picked it up and I said, look, at it and went Egh. and I took my finger mm -hmm. and I started doing finger painting mm -hmm. and I thought oh that's fun and then when it dried I added a word to it and then uh, I'm doing them and I did one and I looked at it and I said god damn this is the exact palette of de Kooning's woman one painting mm. I know it is and I double checked went right online pulled up 
woman one, and I went, nailed it, nailed it. Surely somebody just sent me woman, and so that's woman one. And so I did that until I got not so interested in it, but I liked the idea. So I did a bunch of Pollocks, mm-hmm. uh, and it, they, were, that, they were actually f- fascinating to do because it was to, to do them, I had to do what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would sit there for hours, I would study his paintings, and then I would put, it, put that away, and then I would go and I would do it. And my husband, Bill, said to me, what do you think of Pollock now that you're doing them? And I said, I'm having a really hard time figuring out how he could be so angry and depressed because the motion itself, the mm-hmm. fling, mm-hmm. is joyous. Mm. It's a joyous action. Just sit there and go, whoa, like this, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, and I really liked, really liked doing them, but I couldn't understand him. Mm-hmm. I have to say I had no understanding of him by the time I was finished. And I had put a stop to how many I could do of each kind unless it was text you know, straight text based. Mm-hmm. But if I was doing, uh, you know, like the AE ones or the Richters, I did mm-hmm. a bunch of Richters. Yeah. I watched the Richter show. I have how much fun <laughs> is he having? Lots of yes. fun, no matter how serious a face he puts mm-hmm. on. Let me tell you, this is fun. My squeegee was a six inch plastic roller, by the way. <laughs> but at any, at any rate, I thought no more than a hundred, unless it's plain text. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the Pollux, I stopped myself at around under 70. Mm-hmm. He really was doing something with space, mm-hmm. and it really is radically different. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want it to take over the installation. Mm-hmm. You know, I sure. was really fortunate. My friend uh, Natasha Dombrowski helped me at the end of the first year that I was working on this, she helped me lay them out on the floor because I said to her, I don't know what they look like. I really am working blind. And she said, oh, I'll help you, I'll help you, I'll help you. And then she, of course, helped me with the install mm-hmm. as well uh, and stuff. And, and it, was, it, it was really helpful to have her have her do that and so after but from that point which is was 200 and something Mm -hmm. to the end the 1000 uh, I with each piece that I did I had to think of two things at the same time one one was how is this piece coming out because I have I made them all complete Mm -hmm. you know each one goes as far as I could get it and the other thing at the same time was, how does this fit into the rest of them? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I made this decision about the Pollux to stop it short. Mm-hmm. I had to stop myself on the Richters. They were so much fun. I finally said, oh, you're at 100. Just stop, just stop. <laughs> We showed a thousand paintings. They were installed salon style in combinations that brought together different ideas and worked visually. This is Stephanie Roach, the director of the Flag Art Foundation. 
Flag Art Foundation is a nonprofit arts foundation that presents four to six exhibitions a year, featuring the work of both emerging and established contemporary artists. Betty actually spent a lot of time during the installation process figuring out what the different pairings would be. I mean, these were not random. It was about the different words being able to talk to each other. So the visual formats of each of the paintings were also very unique. Some were stenciled, freehand drawn, the text was over the imagery, they included lace overlays, gauzy close-ups of the female body. Betty also um, riffed on what she refers to as the old boy painting style. Um, so some of these works looked like de Kooning and Fontana and Gustin and Morris Lewis, Barnett Newman, Jackson Pollock, Gerhard Richter, and she would use those as the backgrounds and then place the women's words on top of them. Why do you think Betty's work is resonating with contemporary audiences? Well, I think that Betty has been making brilliant work for decades, but she brings such an interesting visual sensibility as well as humor to a you know serious and relevant subject. And I think that's what makes it so accessible to a younger and a broader audience to engage. Um, this particular body of work offered a really unique experience for the viewer to be surrounded by a cacophony of words that elicit some kind of response. And I think it's clearly struck a nerve in our society um, on many different levels. And the takeaway, you know, really was that it's unacceptable to use this language to put women down. How did audiences react to Betty's work? What did you hear people say when they came to the gallery? Well, reactions, they varied. There was a range. There was laughing, there were people that were curious and pensive and excited um, to discover new phrases. I would say the other end of the spectrum, people were uncomfortable or angry or depressed. But I think the most important part about it was that it stimulated discussion. And this went across, you know, ages and genders and a diverse population. I think that older viewers couldn't believe that this language is still being used to put down women. Younger women, I think that they are probably more used to being inundated with a variety of content through social media and other ways that they didn't find the language as shocking. But I think what was really fascinating was seeing the viewers lulled into the show and they spent a lot of time with it. I think that we noticed that viewers would literally study each one of these beautiful paintings and they would discover new words. I mean, we lived with it for a few months and each time we discovered new words. But I, I heard so many different great conversations. The highlight, though, was being able to see people overcome by this thousand paintings and just seeing that significant number of paintings, it really had such a sobering effect and it was so powerful. And I think that also the range of the types of words, you know, from, from flirtatious to fun to derogatory, it, it was really an amazing opportunity to be able to give Betty this platform. And did you find 
any resistance um, well from either feminists or anyone because um, I know that feminists have always had a sort of um, ambivalent relationship mm -hmm. to your work and especially you know the first or second wave of feminists however you however you call the waves I don't like to do the waves too much anyway but the, the 70s 80s feminists yeah <laughs> we're not so happy with your use of pornography but did you find any similar um, pushback with the texts because some of the texts are um, pejorative about women or well, do you actually, feel we're in a different era? That's a good question. That's mm -hmm. an excellent question. Um, did I feel pushback? I had some very unhappy men people who when they would see the flag show if it was an event and I was there they would say but I'm not like that and I go great because it is great. Yeah. You know, none of these words are meant to be universals. Mm -hmm. These are words I was given. It came from out there, went through me, and I put it back out there. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not accusing anybody of anything. Yeah. Um, but a lot of men related, and women, because I spent a fair amount of time there, one, because of the event, but also I would show up every couple of weeks just to like check things out. And when women would go around and look, they would just laugh. Yeah. They so related. And we had one time, uh, uh, we had a group of um, middle school girls there. And I realized it had been a long time since I had talked talk to somebody who only came up to my waist. <laughs> one girl only came up to my waist. Some were bigger than me. But watching them walk around the room, they knew what all these words meant oh, sure. already. And um, that was a little sad to see, but it didn't bother them. Mm. And what I tried to do uh, with the, the installation. The whole idea of the installation is to get the words and phrases to speak to each other. You know, not just yes. be on the wall as an individual thing, but it's a series of conversations mm -hmm. that went around the room. And I tried to keep it um, as light as I could, because you could, you could approach this with a sledgehammer. And I didn't feel that was necessary. I thought that it was pretty obvious enough mm -hmm. that I should keep the lightest touch that I, that I could. Mm -hmm. So, like, there's this one group. Uh, it starts. It starts out verbal, and um, which is good, mm -hmm. I think. And underneath it says feminist, which is excellent. And then underneath that it says talking talk talking which is not very good and then the bottom one says will she ever shut up <laughs> so I thought well that's a nice conversation yeah slut whore mother cunt you throw like a girl epic bitch needy what is she thinking hey babe looks like I'm working Angel. late tonight don't wait up I'll call you tomorrow fine foxy self sugar and spice and everything nice old maid smile more aching to touch her sex pot womb goddess bad girl you run like a girl crude emotional roller coaster. Cherie. woman of valor verbal looker bush foxy lady hyper joan of arc hot tomato total babe weak better half battle axe basket case rude fly girl vixen Biggest bitch in the universe.
have to ask a market question. Now, will PPOW or any of your galleries, do they sell, is it one installation or do no. you sell uh, them individually? It would be nice if an institution wanted to take it. Yeah. Um, I think to have that happen would probably take 20 years. Really? And my name is not Judy Chicago. Uh -huh. I am not storing this at my expense right. for decades and then giving it away, yeah. which is what happened with a lot of her with work. The with the dinner party. That's mm -hmm. exactly what happened yeah. to the dinner party. It's yeah. its history. She gave it away yeah. to get it out of her house and yeah. get it where it should be, which is an institution. So I think an institution is a very sweet idea, um, but I don't think it's going to happen. And so people are buying them individually. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think probably one or more institutions will buy a chunk. Mm -hmm. And my idea at this point is in 10 years, we'll do a reunion. Oh, that would be. Because yeah. I have the maps. Yes. So it doesn't make any difference where the pieces go. Mm -hmm. I know what the pieces are. I know how big they are. And I think a reunion would be a lot of fun. I wanted to ask you about that because you have some fans in, I would say, more like my generation, people like Nate mm -hmm. Roman. I think he's even younger younger than me. But um, I feel that there's a renewed interest in your work among young people. And I wanted yes. to ask you, why do you think that is? Do you think we're just less prudish than, you know, people 40 years ago? Well, I think it's a ago? great question, and I'm always interested in what your generation and younger generations have to say to me about it. Mm -hmm. um, um, I love that this is happening. And all the experiences that I've had with the millennials have been great experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, and I love that they're interested. And I actually always knew as you age, what you need to do is you can't ossify yourself and stay with your own age group. You have to reach out and reach younger people, mm. always. Otherwise, you're just, what, some relic. I have to go in one minute because I'm speaking at 11.20 oh, right, right, in right. Columbia. But I want to ask you a final question, Betty, about social media, which I think also connects you because I know you're an Instagram user now. I uh, love yes, I you. Yes, I am. I am. How do, you, how do you feel about it? Do you feel, I mean... How do you feel about people posting your, your oh, work? Oh, I love it. I love it. I give it 24 hours to see if it's been taken down, and then I'll repost it. Oh, they get taken down. I didn't even oh, think I've been of taken that. Down. I've been taken down off of Instagram eight I times. I didn't think of that. Now. Uh, and um, almost always it's been a repost of somebody else. Mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of interesting. Facebook, uh, I really don't want to tangle with them, so I don't post my work mm -hmm. on Facebook unless it's a kiss mm -hmm. piece or yes. a text piece. Yes. Uh, you know, obviously the women words have been a boon to me because I can post with impunity. Yes. Anywhere. Mm -hmm. Anywhere. Uh, but for the sex pieces, I don't put them on Facebook. Uh, other people do. Eventually, if they just post one of my pieces, they tend not to have a problem for some reason. Uh, I have found that if you shoot at an angle, 
or if there's a people and standing in front of mm -hmm. the painting, even if the painting is very clear, they don't pick it up. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm also, I don't friend everybody. Mm -hmm. I'm very careful about that. Mm -hmm. uh, I know there are a lot of artists and, and galleries, they just, anybody who puts in a request, they, mm -hmm. they accept it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's fine, mm -hmm. but it's not what I'm interested in. So I'm selective there. Instagram, of course, is like no man's land. So, uh, and I post publicly. And Twitter, Twitter, you can post anything as long as it's not your avatar or banner. Mm -hmm. That's their house rules, mm -hmm. and my first avatar on Twitter was a detail of one of my paintings that I thought was so abstract that they wouldn't catch it, and uh, after three weeks they took my entire account down. With humor and beauty, Betty sparked a dialogue that she started with this body of work and the language hasn't necessarily changed. Women are still spoken about in this derogatory way. There is a wide range. I don't think there's an end to the sentence. And I think that it's something that should continually be a topic that we revisit. It's something that people are not yet at peace with. for speaking with us today. Thank you. We're very excited to host you at OUP. We'd like to acknowledge the many people involved in this podcast. Thanks to Dr. Betty Ann Brown, Mitchell Algus of the Mitchell Algus Gallery, and Stephanie Roach from the Flag Art Foundation here in New York. You can find the Mitchell Algus Gallery at mitchellalgusgallery.com and the Flag Foundation at flagartfoundation.org. A huge thank you to Betty Tompkins for taking the time to talk with us here at the office. For more on Betty and to see pictures of her work, visit Betty Tompkins, that's T-O-M-P-K-I-N-S dot com. Thank you, as always, to our Benazit Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Kathy Batista. To learn more about Benazit, head over to OxfordArtOnline.com. A special shout-out to the staff of the Reference Department at OUP who came to hang out with us and record some women words. Kudos to you, co-workers. Finally, thanks to Grove Art Assistant Editor Lillian Ling, our sound editor and producer for this episode of the Oxford Comment. And thank you for listening. More episodes of the Oxford Comment can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and as always, on the OUP blog. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, please feel free to leave us a comment. Until next time, friends.